Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I am the managing editor of Providence. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Joel Rosenberg. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of All Israel News and All Arab News. And he is the author of a brand new book called Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. So first off, Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Mark, great to be with you, especially, especially as, we, uh, as we're recording this around the 20th anniversary of the horror of 9-11, but also the one-year anniversary of the hope of the Abraham Accords, really some, some interesting dynamics going on in the Middle East right now. Yes, and uh, it's all, I mean, it's, it's fascinating studying the history, but there's so much going on right now that I think a lot of students are going to come back and need to study these, what's going on. And I think your book looks like it's going to be part of what people will need to study. Well, it's actually the only book, right, that, that brings us right up to speed to where we are right now in terms of the uh, very different trend lines. There's two entirely different trend lines going on in the Middle East, one very dark and evil and one very, very hopeful. And so to kind of uh, segue there, so you, why did you write this book and what is the, what is the book trying to say? Well, there were several reasons in writing it. Uh, I would say the theme of Enemies and Allies is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. What I mean by that is that, you know, if you look back at December 7th, 1941, for example, the United States was clearly blindsided by an evil, in this case, the, the government of, the, of Imperial Japan, that we just didn't understand hated us this much or had the will or the capacity to attack us as they did at, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, 20 years ago on September 11th, uh, tragically, you know, it's clear that our leaders just didn't fully understand how much Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda forces hated us and were determined to, to wreak enormous, enormous damage, even though they had it hit us before. Um, at the World Trade Center, in fact, back in 1993. And so this is one of the great risks of, of leadership. If we uh, don't understand the threats facing us, if we don't understand who our enemies are, then we are at risk of being blindsided uh, because we're looking the wrong direction, right? And so, um, so that's a deep concern I have. 20 years later, do our leaders understand do, do, do people understand, or the American people and others, do Christians understand, and particularly do young people understand who our enemies are and who our allies are? So that's the, that's the central reason. The, just the one other piece, Mark, which, which makes enemies and allies distinctive from really every other book that's on the market is that, that I am not just observing this from the sidelines. Uh, I was given both a front row seat and, in a sense, a backstage pass to uh, to history unfolding, I sat down with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, with uh, Jordan's King Abdullah II, with Egypt's uh, President Abdel Fattah El Sisi, with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Z uh, Salman, with the UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, and and numerous others, and President Trump in the Oval Office, and 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 advisors to Biden, and I could go on, but the point is. Very rarely have we, in fact, never has there been a book that just actually takes you inside the palaces and the presidential compounds and the Oval Office, and you hear 
in the words of the people that have been making these decisions, uh, shaping the Middle East one way or the other, for good or for ill, you hear what they say in their own words. And love them or hate them, you have a chance to at least evaluate um, how they think and how they see the Middle East changing in, in, in dramatic, really tectonic ways. And so what are some of the major risks in the, or what are the major threats in the Middle East that you talk about in the book? Well, broadly speaking, the, the, the great threat, of course, is radical Islamism. And I define that in the book very simply. And that is, that, to be clear, it's not 1.8 billion Muslims. You know, the vast, vast majority of Muslims in the world don't want to use violence. They don't believe in suicide bombings or, you know, kamikaze attacks or anything of the sort. So, um, you know, this is not a, a book of Islamophobia. But radical Islamism is a subset. And uh, social science, public polling research uh, over many years, hundreds of surveys shows that about 7 to 10 percent of the Muslim world um, do, um, do hold radical views, meaning they believe that violence is appropriate to advance their theological and political objectives. Okay, doesn't mean that they will all use violence themselves, but they support violence to achieve those objectives. And so they support suicide bombings and kamikaze attacks and, and all these other types of um, terrors that we've seen uh, over, over the, the decades. So that's radical Islamism. And that, broadly speaking, encompasses you know, all the terrorist organizations and states that we look at. But the Iranian regime is a, is a unique uh, actor in the sense it's a state actor, right? It's not a non-state actor like Hamas or uh, Islamic Jihad or the Taliban. Taliban now has a state because we've surrendered it, but uh, under President Biden, but uh, <laughs> for the last 20 years, they were stateless. Um, but the Iranian regime is unique because it's not just radical Islam. I describe in Enemies and Allies that the Iranian regime, led by Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, subscribes to what I call apocalyptic Islamism. And just very briefly, what I mean by that is uh, Khamenei and his inner circle are not just trying to achieve certain objectives tactically or strategically. Um, using violence. They actually believe in a genocidal form of end times theology or eschatology uh, in which they believe that Israel being the center of Judaism is the little Satan and that the United States, the, the epicenter as it were of Christendom in their view is, uh, you know, the great Satan. And Hamanai has been pretty clear. He and his people, his team have been pretty clear that they want to annihilate the little Satan and the great Satan from the earth, and then thus usher in their end time scenario in which Islam comes to dominate the entire planet. And this is why they're seeking nuclear warheads and the missiles to deliver them. And, and so when you understand those two things, and I document all that in the book, but when you understand it, you realize how, you know, what we're up against, that we need leaders who understand these things and, and aren't exhausted by but stay focused on dealing with these threats. In the beginning of the book, you have like a map with you know, enemies and allies clearly marked out. And so the lines running from like Turkey, Iraq, Iran are the enemies. And then so that border, that front line becomes what Israel, Jordan and Saudi Arabia. 
And when I saw that, I kind of thought about how in the 50s, the United States tried to create this northern tier alliance with Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Pakistan, where trying to put that front line of competition on the border of the Soviet Union. And so this is kind of, you know, we're kind of recognize or you're arguing that this has been further back. So why are you drawing the line there? Well, it's a great question, Mark, and perceptive, because uh, the map actually comes from the office of Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz. I did an exclusive interview with him. I've gotten to know him in a number of meetings and conversations over the last several years, but I, I did an exclusive interview with him for Enemies and Allies. And this, this map comes from his office. Now, to be fair, um, there are two countries particularly that are on the map on the enemy side that I would say aren't probably full-on enemies yet, but are trending in the wrong direction. Turkey would be one of them. You know, technically, uh, the Republic of Turkey is an ally. It's a, it's a NATO ally, in fact. But under Recep Erdogan, uh, the Turkish president, uh, it's moving decidedly away from the United States, away from NATO, away from Israel, uh, towards Russia, towards Iran, and, and really towards, our, towards the enemy axis. So that's a problem. And I spend quite a bit of time. It's one of the only books that really looks at uh, how Turkey under Erdogan is going uh, from one side of the ledger ally to the other side of the ledger enemy. The other would be Qatar, which is trying to play both sides of the fence, as it were. It really is very close to Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood. A lot of terrorist leaders live in Doha and, and probably the worst uh, middle, uh, media outlet in the Middle East, super anti-American, anti-Western, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, anti-Sunni, moderate Arab, is Al Jazeera. And I describe that in the book, and it's based in Doha, Qatar. So, but we also, United States also has a, a military base there. So uh, again, playing both sides of the fence, but trending in the wrong direction. And speaking of Turkey, so the for a long time, it's especially geographically, it's been a very important ally for the United States. Yes. We have our air base there. We can launch operations through the Middle East from there or through Qatar. But the air base in Turkey is incredibly important. And I know some people argue that if the U.S. wants to counter Russia, if it wants to support Ukraine and Eastern Europe, being allies with Turkey is very important for that because they can hinder our ability to enter the Black Sea for military logistics and whatnot. Um, some of those same people would say that you can either counter Russia or have Turkey as an enemy, but you can't do both effectively. So uh, how, you know, what can the United States do to salvage that relationship or is it going to be very difficult? Well, Mark, you're raising good and, and thorny, important questions, right? Because, um, and that's why neither the Trump administration nor the Biden administration so far is, is you know, calling for NATO to throw out Turkey. By the way, there's no mechanism for a, a NATO ally to be removed because <laughs> uh, nobody thought that there would ever be an issue. But it really is an issue right now, right? You've, Turkey under Erdogan is not the Turkey that we saw for the last hundred years, right? Turkey in many ways was the, the model of Muslim moderation after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, um, which was right after World War I. And, you know, Turkey became a beautiful, I mean, it is a beautiful, it remains a beautiful country. I've been there many times. I love the Turkish people and I love Turkish society. But, uh, but under Erdogan, who was a closet Islamist and has now come out in the open, um, it's a problem. They're buying Russian 
high-tech military equipment, and then they want to buy ours from the United States, F-35. No way. Like you, you, they, Turkey has to choose one side or the other. And right now, the predominance of Turkey's choices under Erdogan is choosing the wrong side. It's choosing our enemies over the United States and the NATO alliance. So uh, it's really Turkey that's putting us in this position, uh, not the United States. We're not trying to drive them out of the alliance. They're, they're, they're driving themselves out. And so uh, we've, Washington has to have a serious conversation about how to incentivize Turkey to come back or to recognize that Turkey may be lost. Um, you know, can we outlast Erdogan? Will the next person after Erdogan, um, you know, be better? I hope so. But right now it's a huge problem because Turkey's the largest military in, uh, in the NATO alliance. So what do you do with them? So you also, you know, like you said earlier, you went to Egypt and you spoke with LCC. So what role does Egypt play in this region and in our you know, United States relationship with the region? And what did you learn from those interviews? Well, President LCC is a fascinating, complex, uh, and admittedly uh, controversial figure. Um, here's, his, here's the good side. And, and I'm very impressed with many of the things he did. I'm critical of some. And I say this in enemies and allies, but but what has he done? You know, and I said this to him. I've met with him five times now, well, four times, and then we met sort of briefly with it, um, uh, sort of in passing with him, um, um, in a story that I tell in the book. But four substantive times. Basically, what what CC has done is rescue the world's largest Arab Muslim country uh, from the reign of terror of the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay, just a, a decade ago. Uh, it was the Muslim Brotherhood under Mohammed Morsi that was that was that had captured control of Egypt um, during the Arab Spring, and was was just taking uh, Turkey towards uh, a fundamentalist Taliban-like Sharia law system. Was going to you know sort of blow up the relationship with Israel. Didn't do it immediately, but was signaling that um, was uh, was was had. Uh, was inviting Iran's leaders to come meet in Cairo, which hadn't been done in, you know, since the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. Mohammed Morsi flew to Iran and wanted to build an alliance with Iran. Basically, Turkey, I'm sorry, Egypt under the Muslim Brotherhood wanted to become the Sunni radical Islamist power similar to the Shia Islamist power in 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 Iran. Okay? So this was a disaster in the making. And uh, President el-Sisi had been the defense minister under Mohammed Morsi uh, because Morsi misread Sisi. Sisi's a very devout Muslim, but he wasn't a radical Islamist. But Morsi assumed if you were a devout Muslim, then you would be uh, a Muslim Brotherhood acolyte. And so uh, Morsi had made Sisi the, the, the president of Egypt. I'm sorry, the defense minister. But, uh, but as Egyptians were horrified by what the Brotherhood was doing, they were pleading with Morsi to step down and for new elections and so forth. And, and Sisi and the military moved and removed the Muslim Brotherhood and therefore rescued 100 million uh, Arab Muslims, uh, plus you know, many uh, 15 or 16 million, 17 million Christians in Egypt um, from the reign of terror of the Brotherhood. Uh, more, uh, President el-Sisi then 
rebuilt all of the churches uh, in Egypt that had been burned down or damaged during the uh, the Brotherhood's reign of terror. Um, he uh, LCC built the largest church cathedral in the history of the Middle East and gave it to the Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve uh, as a present. <laughs> um, we've never seen a Muslim leader do that in the Middle East, not like that. I, in fact, he asked me to bring a, my second delegation to see him, to be there to honor and commemorate uh, and note this extraordinary moment. So, CC uh, has improved the economy. He's uh, he's he's led counterterrorism efforts to to calm down and pacify the country. He, but he's make he's overreacting on a number of human rights issues, which is a problem. Um, arresting human rights activists and journalists, and and I criticize him for this um, in the book and and directly to him. But in the grand scheme, he has rescued a nation from radical Islamism, and I can't think, Mark, of a single example of an Arab Muslim leader liberating an Arab Muslim country from radical Islamism in history. Maybe I'm missing one that I should be thinking of, but usually it's the United States Marines uh, that come and do that, but not Arab Muslims themselves. And some of the uh, you know our Providence contributors have written, have criticized Egypt, uh, like they note some of the benefits or some of the good things that it, they have done for the cops and for the Christians of Egypt, but they still kind of pressure him on different points. Are there any things like, within that that you see uh, that Egypt needs to improve upon? Or what's your assessment of that kind of criticism that comes from some of this angle? Yes, there, I, I, I think that there's a, we still need to put great um, significant pressure on President El-Sisi and his government uh, to keep making more reforms, make them deeper, make them wider. Um, because What's important for the critics of LCC to recognize is I think I think some Christian critics of CC um, make a mistake because they focus first on criticizing what he hasn't done yet. I think the right way is to praise him for the things he has done because they're big, and it's hard, honestly, for him or any leader to hear your next sentence, which is, "Could you do more?" If you're not being given any credit for what you have done right, okay? And I think that so much has happened that's positive. Imagine what life would be for Christians right now if Mohammed Morsi and, and the Brotherhood were still in charge. It'd be a horror show. It was already a horror show, and, and it, was, it was getting worse. So I think, uh, especially my Coptic Orthodox Christian friends, but others, Protestants and others, I think we need to do a, a better job really praising Sisi and his team for what they have done well, because these are human rights to liberate people from radical Islamism, to strengthen the economy, to, you know, to uh, pacify, you know, to be effective in counterterrorism so you can go to the mall and go to school and go to the pyramids and, and not, you know, be blown up every few minutes, you know, to go to church and not be blown up. That's a big deal. But there's so much more that has to happen. And we have to remember, these are systemic institutional problems that go back decades, they go back hundreds of years, really. Um, and so they can't all be changed overnight. But CeCe's moving in the right direction, and he should be encouraged to do more, not blasted for, um, you know, I think for, you know, which uh, unfortunately some some Christians are are, are just just laser focused on what he hasn't done yet 
and they seem unwilling to be honest and fair, which is how much has already gotten done. And some other people you spoke with. So you mentioned this, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who became especially unpopular after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So what did you learn from him and how does Saudi Arabia play in our U.S. relations to the Middle East? How much time do you have, Mark? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a big topic. Um, I'll give you the short version, but I spend probably more time on Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman than any other figure in this book, Enemies and Allies, because I think he's the most controversial, most complicated, and yet probably the most consequential leader that we are seeing um, in the Middle East right now on the ally side. So, um, so the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was horrific, absolutely ghastly, uh, unconscionable. I, I can't use language strongly enough. Uh, and I say it in Enemies and Allies, and I tell that story of, of what happened and, um, and, 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 and what's been happening over the last few years. You know, Mark, when we were invited by the crown prince to Saudi Arabia, we learned several things. First of all, we were, this was, the invitation came and we accepted several months before the Khashoggi murder, right? So when the Khashoggi murder happened, we had to make a decision as a delegation of evangelical leaders. Are we going or not? Part of our process of deciding prayerfully of whether we were going to go or not was the fact that we've been told by the Saudi foreign minister, Adel al-Joubert, again, about a month prior to, the, to this horrible murder, Joel, do you realize that you're, you are bringing the first group of Christians in the 300 years that the Saud family has controlled so much of the Arabian Peninsula, you're the first Christian leaders ever to be invited to the palace? Which I, no, I did not know that. <laughs> uh, but it's not done. Like for 300 years, it was, you know, if you're a Muslim leader, I'll invite you. Or if you're a foreign leader who happens to be a Christian, I'll invite you. But I'm not inviting Christian leaders into the palace. That's So this was dramatic for us to be invited. And we concluded that, listen, Paul wanted to go see Nero. So in Rome, how are we in the early stages of this crisis with Khashoggi, where it wasn't clear exactly who was responsible, are we going to play judge and jury? Or are we going to go and talk about this horrible moment and press the crown prince on this, but also press him on why are there no churches in Saudi Arabia? And what are you going to do to expand religious freedom? You know, there's 1.4 million Christians in Saudi Arabia. Now, admittedly, most of these are foreign workers and their families, but still they're there and they don't have a single church to go to. Are we going to sacrifice that opportunity to press the crown prince when no one gets these opportunities historically to, to talk about these things? And what about pressing the Saudis to make peace with Israel? And how are they going to deal with Iran and, and extremism in the mosques? And anyway, we end up having all of these conversations for two hours on the record. Uh, this book is the only book in which the author who writes about Mohammed bin Salman has ever met him, much less had him on the record. And it's a fascinating discussion. And whether you love or hate him after reading Enemies and Allies, you get to meet him. You get to hear us ask or read. I mean, it's not on audio, it's, but read us asking the very questions. You're in the palace. You're in the room with us. And we are pressing him 
on some very sensitive, very controversial issues. And not only do we have that time with him, he invites us back the following year to, to go deeper. And so um, I, I think MBS has made huge and positive change in Saudi Arabia. I'm a fiction writer by, uh, by profession, Mark. I write political thrillers. If, if MBS didn't exist, you'd have to make him up. But that doesn't mean he's done everything right. One thing I will say, one more point on this, uh, and that is I have seen absolutely no proof that MBS ordered Jamal Khashoggi to be murdered. I believe the preponderance of the evidence, and I write about this, and I write about how different people think about this, okay? Uh, so you don't have to come to my conclusion. Your readers don't have to, but, uh, or your listeners. But I will say that I even cite the Biden administration uh, document that they released, four-page document, earlier this year, right before we went to press for Enemies and Allies, that essentially condemns MBS as the murderer. The problem with that document is it doesn't say that he's the murderer. What it it says that he it says that he U.S. intelligence has concluded that he must have ordered the hit. Okay, but then on page four, it cites about twenty six people I think that were involved in the operation, and it specifically says, and I quote the document in the book. I'll have to paraphrase it here that we U.S. intelligence cannot assess that these folks knew that their actions would result in Jamal Khashoggi's death. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. If the crown prince ordered these people to kill him, and they did, how would they not have known that that was their mission? But if U.S. intelligence is saying, we can't say that these people knew that their actions, these Saudi people would, officials would know that their actions would result in Khashoggi's death, then MBS didn't order it. Now, he may have ordered them to rendition Khashoggi, you know, arrest him and bring him back to the kingdom. But this is a problem because if he did it and there's proof, then we have to deal with that. But there, nobody has shown us any proof yet. And that seems odd to me. It suggests the possibility that everybody is conjecturing that MBS did it because he must have had to have. But that's a little bit like saying Saddam Hussein must have had chemical weapons because he had them in the past and he used them and he, he said he had them and he kicked out all the inspectors and then we went to war and no chemical weapons, right? Or that Trump had to have colluded with the Russians in 2016, except we'd spent $35 million with a special prosecutor and it proved that he actually didn't. He may be guilty of other things, but he, he's not, Trump's not guilty of that. So we have to be careful with the, well, he must have done it. Right, unless there's proof, and so far there isn't. So um, I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm saying how do you work with an ally who's doing so many good things, and the U.S. government under Biden is accusing him of murder, but without proving it. You also talk about the Abraham Accords. So, uh, like, how big of a deal are the Abraham Accords? And uh, maybe kind of like for I think most of our listeners will probably know what the Abraham Accords are, but. I'm sure we'll have some who don't follow foreign policy a whole lot. So if you could kind of recap what those are and then like how will, you know, the Biden administration or will the Biden administration build upon them? Yeah, OK, great questions. Well, this is the hope, right? We, we, we see the horror of Afghanistan surrender, see the horror of the Iranian regime so close to nuclear weapons um, and kind of going in this apocalyptic uh, way. It's, it's very scary, very dark. 
but we also see tectonic changes happening inside the Arab world, the reforms they're making inside their own countries, but also their willingness and their, their desire even to make peace and normalize their relationship with the state of Israel and the Jewish people. That's huge. Like we've only seen in the past 75 years of the history of Israel, two Arab-Israeli peace deals up until now, right? Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994. And if you call the Oslo Accords peace, uh, then those are the, that's in the early 90s too, but unfortunately it didn't really lead to peace. But the Abraham Accords have now led to just sweeping changes where you have the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and the Kingdom of Morocco and uh, the Republic of Sudan, plus a non-Arab country, Kosovo, but a Muslim country, all normalizing relationship with Israel. Um, it's dramatic. It's exciting. I was there on the south lawn of the White House um, just a year ago, September 15th, um, reporting on, for all our websites, all Israel news and all Arab news, this drama of the, the first two countries, uh, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, signing peace treaties with Israel, with the prime minister of Israel right there and the two foreign ministers from the Arab countries and President Trump brokering this deal. It was historic. It was moving. For me, two of my four sons served in the Israeli army, uh, both in combat units and one of them in a special forces unit. So it's very encouraging and, and, and actually emotional for me to see Arab countries concluding after 100 years, after, certainly after 75, that the Jews and the state of Israel are not the enemy in this region. We don't have to agree with Israel on everything, but they're not the enemy. They're our friend. They're our ally, especially against the forces of radical Islamism and apocalyptic Islamism. Um, I, you know, Trump was widely, sharply criticized, ridiculed even for trying to make peace in the Middle East. Everybody said he couldn't do it. It's pretty dramatic that he brokered these four deals. Um, and I think he actually does deserve a Nobel Peace Prize for it. And I say that, Mark, as someone who was a never-Trumper in 2016. I had sharp disagreements with uh, Mr. Trump as a candidate. Um, I, I had some significant criticisms of him as president, and I, I, I note those in enemies and allies. But I also describe a, a, an Oval Office meeting I had with uh, President Trump, Vice President Pence, Secretary of State Pompeo, and then National Security Advisor John Bolton, in which I, I told President Trump that I, was an, I had been a never-Trumper and why I had criticisms of him. But I also noted the extraordinary success that he was having with his Middle East policies, um, among them moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, selling F-35 strike fighter uh, jets to Israel, uh, strengthening the missile defense with Israel. For air, Well, I'm going to recount some that hadn't quite happened yet when I met with him, but, but were trending in that direction. Four Arab-Israeli peace uh, agreements getting rid of the ISIS caliphate, defeating the ISIS caliphate, liberating 5 million Muslims, Christians, and Yazidis from the genocide that the ISIS forces were waging, uh, killing the ISIS commander Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in, a, in a, a drone strike, taking out 
Iran's top military uh, terrorist commander, Qasem Soleimani, uh, ripping up the Iran nuclear deal, which was insane because it gave Iran a pathway to nuclear weapons, even though it was somewhat delayed, uh, imposing a maximum pressure campaign on Iran to pressure them to to give up their nuclear and terror ambitions, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a very impressive list, a very messy process. Okay, you look at the, the Trump White House, it was messy, Mark. <laughs> you, you observed it. But, but I tell in the book, you know, these are extraordinary accomplishments from a man who had absolutely no foreign policy or national security experience. So I basically call the balls and strikes in this book um, with, with uh, MBS, with LCC, with President Trump. Look, this is what they're doing right. This is what they're doing wrong. This is, you know, this, these, these things could go either way. But I think it's important for Christians to look in a fair-minded way at all of these leaders, and of course others, Chinese leaders and uh, other leaders around the world, European leaders, Russian leaders, um, because most people are complicated. And when we look at our allies and we say, are, these are the people making decisions about the future of the Middle East that affect Christians in these countries and affect us as Americans. I'm of course dual US-Israeli citizen, so it really doubly affects me uh, what these Arab allies and what these Israeli leaders think and what the American leaders think. So in some, I, I find them complicated, but mostly positive, but need to be pressed to do more, to do better. And I think the Abraham Accords, therefore, are historic. They're game-changing. They're so encouraging in a world of darkness and division. This is a bipartisan effort to bring peace and security and enhanced trade and tourism and technology transfers and, and sales in the Middle East of all places. It's a good thing. I don't think the Biden administration has done enough to embrace it, but they're doing more. And I was at the one-year anniversary event with Jared Kushner and all the Arab and Israeli ambassadors a couple of days ago, um, and it was encouraging. And there were officials there from the Biden administration, and I chatted with them. And there were Democrat congressmen there, Ted Deutsch, uh, most prominently, and I and I interviewed him for all Israel News. So I think the Biden team has to do much more because this is a huge bipartisan moment. And I'll close with this, Mark. This is a huge answer to prayer. You know, we Christians have been praying for the peace of Jerusalem as commanded by King David in Psalm 122, verse 6. And Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. And the Apostle Paul talks to us about you know, make, you know, as, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. We're, we're commanded as Christians to, to be peacemakers and reconcilers, if we can, right? Uh, often we can't, but if we can, so this is, the Abraham Accords represent a huge success story of God answering prayers through fallible people, through flawed people. Um, and this is the only book that tells that story. And, and goes inside. You really hear the story uh, in a, uh, from the players themselves on how it came about. And um, I'm encouraged by it, but I think much more can be done. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us on the Profcast. And for listeners, be sure to check out the book. We'll have some show notes on the website where you can, where we'll link up to that book. And you'll also be able to find him on social media there. And also, for listeners, if you don't already subscribe to the Profcast, do so. It's on um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Overcast or some other ones, if there's one that a listener would like for us to add to, uh, you know, send us an email. But anyways, uh, Joel, thank you for speaking with us today. Well, my pleasure, Mark, and I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of what you guys are doing, and uh, looking forward to working together with you guys to help educate uh, Christians at, at, at every age, and especially young people, on what really going on in the Middle East, and what especially what God is doing there, and how we can be part of it. 